morning, one and all. Great to be with you on this Sunday morning and filling in for your beloved pastor. We are going to be opening our Bibles to 1 Chronicles chapter 4 for our message entitled, The Power of Prayer from the Place of Pain. As you're reading through God's Word, it's such a blessing to receive the nourishment from unexpected places. Ushers are handing out Bibles. If you need a Bible, keep your hand up. They're going to get those to you. And no matter where you're at in life, we can go through times of real pain in our life. And yet as we cry out to the Lord in prayer, he will release his power into our lives. This is one of those circumstances in 1 Chronicles chapter 4 that you're reading through one of the begat sections of the Bible. There's name after name after name after name after name, and then boom, here's these two verses about this guy by the name of Jabez that kind of rocks our world. You know, I used to have the misconception when I was a young Christian, well, there's got to be a place you grow to maturity that you just don't have struggles anymore. You know what I mean? I thought there was this mythological place that you arrived and you're just, you're just not going to have the same challenges. I thought everybody with gray hair has no problems. My grandfather blew that myth out of the water when I was with him one day. He was 79 years old. And him and my grandmother were these fiery uh, people from Oklahoma that loved Jesus. They were the most opinionated abrasive, Jesus-loving people you've ever met in your life. And my grandmother was a Lunigan, so she was Irish, and then she was an Okie. And when you put Ireland and Oklahoma together, what do you get? A tornado is what you get. And my grandmother, she had all these pithy sayings and things, but my grandfather, when my grandmother passed away, my grandfather needed to uh, have some errands ran, so him and I drove around. He's 79 years old. I'm a Christian. And I'm having fellowship with my grandfather, which was really sweet. He was in the aftermath of losing my grandmother. And he opened his heart and shared with me an intimate struggle that him and my grandmother had been having that I knew nothing about. And I thought to myself, when he started to tell the story, immediately I thought, you're too old to have problems. That's what I thought in my brain. Like, you can't be struggling. And he said, you know, your grandmother was extremely jealous. I didn't know that. He said, just a couple of years ago, I mean, late 70s, they were at the grocery store in this small, dinky little town. They just got paved roads. And their little grocery store, my grandfather and grandmother were there buying some groceries. And the clerk's probably 30 years old, young lady. And my grandfather's very sweet and charming, and he's talking with her just about life. And well, afterwards, my grandmother was in a rage. She was fit to be tied because she thought he was hitting on this 30-year-old. Thought he was flirting and he wanted to have a fling with the clerk. My grandfather sitting there just dumbfounded. Well, she's young enough to be my great-granddaughter. I mean, Jewel, that's my grandmother's name, Jewel. Jewel, what are you thinking? Well, she would not let go of this all week long. She was just berating him. As he said, she got her tail feathers in the air. And she was, and he said, I just couldn't take it. He said, I was just at the end of myself. He said, I walked right out here, son. And he pointed to a spot in the middle of the road in front of the house. He said, I walked out the sidewalk and I stood in the middle of the road and I looked up to heaven and I said, Lord Jesus, you've got to do something. Either deliver me or take me home. I can take it no more. 
He said, I went for a walk and he came back and he said, son, it was the most supernatural thing. He said, the peace of the Lord fell upon your grandmother, Jewel, and she has not mentioned or been jealous one moment over the last two or three years. And he said, that's the grace of God. And I thought to myself, in his late 70s, from the place of my grandfather's pain, he offered this prayer and it brought power to his life and to his marriage. And no matter whether we're young and have no gray hair or we're old, you and I throughout our life, our knees are the place of power in as we seek the Lord. Let's check this out. Read with me. Verses 9 and 10, great passage. In a sea of names, we have an oasis. It says here, Now Jabez was more honorable than his brothers, and his mother called his name Jabez, saying, Because I bore him in pain. And Jabez called on the God of Israel, saying, Oh, that you would bless me indeed and enlarge my territory, that your hand would be with me and that you would keep me from evil, that I may not cause pain. So God granted him what he requested. Notice a little backdrop of this powerful prayer that has five dimensions to it. As we see his honor, his name, And his father is conspicuously absent. First of all, his honor. It says, now Jabez was more honorable than his brothers. The word in the Hebrew is kabod. It means weighty. It means substance. It means significance. We would use the word, he is more respected than his brothers. Now, the Bible tells us that when we compare ourselves with ourselves, we are not wise. If you go through life saying, well, I'm doing better than him, or I'm doing worse than them, we either get filled with pride that, hey, I'm doing better than that guy, or we're dejected by depression because, hey, everybody's doing better than me. But the reality is, from God's perspective, he is in the position, knowing all the information, to give a proper evaluation of lives. Your life, my life, your brothers, your sisters, everybody around you. And the Holy Spirit here sees fit to lift up Jabez, who's going to be an awesome example of tapping into God's power from a place of pain. And he says, he is more honorable than his brothers. He's more respected. How do you get respect? You gain respect or honor from others by being faithful with the opportunities that you have, right? Say you go get a job. You get that job and you show up, nobody knows you from Adam, you have no respect or you start basically with the unknown, but you show up faithfully to work, you do a great job, you have a positive attitude, you're always looking to see how you can benefit the company, you don't leave early, you don't waste the boss's time, and you don't badmouth everybody behind their back. Now, you just do that, which seems like a pretty simple job description, and you do that over a couple of years, what's going to happen with your co-workers? They're going to respect you. They come, they work hard, they have a good attitude, and everybody around begins to, your your, uh, dollars, if you will, in respect dollars rises. You do that for a lifetime, and you have a lot of people that respect you for what you've done. If you love your wife or you love your husband, you're doing the best you can with the opportunity God gives you, and you do that for a significant period of time, and what happens is that people's respect for you rises. Now, if somebody shows up late to work, talks all day long, doesn't do their job, and when they're called on the carpet, blames everybody around them, what do they have? Disrespect. You can't wait for the management to get a clue and get this bum out of here right? 
disrespect because they have the same opportunity, but what are they doing with it? They're squandering it. They have the same opportunities. One squanders it, one does the most he can with it. If you have children, if you have four children, I came, came from a family of four. Every child, it's as different as the directions on the compass, isn't it? There's four of us, north, south, east, west. We're all so radically different. Though you're, you grow up in the same environment, you grow up with the same challenges, you grow up, grow up with the same parents, and yet what those four kids do with those opportunities is either being faithful, doing the best you can with what you got, or going through life playing the part of a victim because of the hardships of life. Isn't it true? Isn't it strange that four kids can come from the same family and the outcomes of their life 30 years down the road are radically different? Because you have something called the power of human response. Only you and you alone can respond to the circumstances of your life, either in faith to God or playing the victim. We all have that choice. Are you going through life responding poorly to those things and therefore your life is falling into dishonor because, let's face it, when a person constantly plays the victim and lives in perpetual self-pity, it's not very attractive. Can we say that? We say amen. Right. But if somebody's doing well and they're joyful in the Lord, we want to hang out with them? Let's be barbecue buddies, right? I want to hang out with you. You're doing awesome in life. And it doesn't mean their life was any different. It might just be as hard. But it says that he's more honorable. It also says that his name, his mother called his name Jabez, which literally means pain or sorrow. That's what she names him. This is great. Now, my mom actually did say, you're such a pain, oftentimes. But she didn't put it on my birth certificate. You know what I mean? Pain, it's time for breakfast. Pain, it's time for dinner. Pain, I mean, he's such a pain. That's what Jabez means. So she names him pain. Now it tells us here in this story, in Chronicles, it's talking about a father, a son, 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 a mother and a son. The dad's conspicuously gone. He's either died, abandoned the family, or not worth mentioning. You choose. Say, well, if he is my father, <laughs> I don't know what category your father would be in. But the father is conspicuously missing. And that in itself, if he came into this world at a time of relational crisis, financial crisis, emotional crisis, for some reason, I think it's more than just pain. For, for this simple reason. If you are a mother and it hurt to have a child, please raise your hand. All right, is that pretty much universal? Unless you were passed out. Right. It's a universal thing, it hurts a lot. We just, my daughter just had our, our first grandchild. She was in labor 42 hours. She pushed for four and a half hours straight when it came time to push. It was brutal, poor thing. But she, she made it through. It could be that it was just a painful birth. That's true. Because in the Hebrew scriptures, people name their children significant things surrounding their birth. For instance, when Rachel is dying, probably hemorrhaging from the birth of Benjamin, 
She's given birth. The midwife says, oh, be encouraged. You have a male son. And she calls, she knows her life is ebbing out of her. And she says, call him Ben-Oni, which means son of sorrow. She was sad and sorrowful at that moment, feeling that she was dying. And she said, call him Ben-Oni, son of sorrow. Now, who wants to go through that with life with that handle? What's your name? Son of sorrow. No wonder you're so sad. You know, I was... Son of sorrow. But the midwife comes out and says, hey, you have a son. And Jacob says, what did Rachel name him? Benoni, son of sorrow. He said, that's not going to do. I'm not calling my kid for the rest of his life, son of sorrow. You call him Benjamin, son of my right hand. Now, which handle would you rather have? I'm going with dad's, son of my right hand. That's my boy. Right? When Esau is born, he's born, and he comes out, and it says that his body was covered with red hair. He was a furry little booger. <laughs> he had red hair. And they looked at him and said, what do we name him? They said, well, let's name him Harry. That's what Esau means. Name him Harry. It's quite obvious. And as he's coming out of the womb, his little brother is Jacob. And he's got a hold of his heel. What should we name him? Well, let's call him heel catcher. That's what Jacob means. Heel catcher. They're so original. <laughs> right? They didn't need any baby books. If something crazy happened, you said, name him Harry, heel catcher, son of my right hand. And here she has a terrible birth, and she just said, call that kid pain. I was the youngest of four. My mom had had three children. They were all pretty average in size at her birth. And my mom said, before you came along, I had one tiny stretch mark. And you devastated my body. And now it is covered with stretch marks. You see, the... The technology wasn't as good back then. She went to see the doctor, and the doctor said, you're going to have a Christmas baby. I didn't show up till January 31st. So that's like five weeks missing the date. And then I was nine pounds, 10 ounces. And so my mom says, she still gets a little, you know, snippy. When, you ruined my body. <laughs> and then they didn't have a name for me, right? You've had three kids, and this is the kicker. My dad, after having three kids very close together back in the day, he says, forget this, you know, be fruitful, multiply business. I'm going to nip this in the bud. He goes to the doctor. He gets a vasectomy. And two, we, two months later, he comes home from work, and my mom says, Larry, I have a surprise for you. I'm pregnant. And my dad, he's got a really hot temper. He just exploded. And he was in a rage talking about, you know, the doctor's license from a Cracker Jack's box. And he's paid good money, you know, to tie them tubes, and he can't even tie a knot. What kind of technology does it take to tie a knot, you know? He's so upset. He finally cools off from the other room, and he walks back in, and he says, well, he's either going to be the president of the United States or a preacher. So my dad's a prophet. Here I am, <laughs> Sunday morning, preaching. Dad nailed it. He knew. But they brought me home, three kids, you know, maybe they didn't have baby books in the 60s. They said, we don't know what to name this one. And they asked my uncle, my mom's little brother, who's living, sleeping on our couch, and says, Jack, what should we name this kid? My uncle Jack, his favorite cartoon in 1964, it's the only year it ran, it was called uh, Ricochet Rabbit. Bing, bing, bing. And uh, any of you remember that? Only the people with gray hair, yes. Uh, Ricochet Rabbit, bing, bing, bing. I think you should name him Ricochet after this. And so they name, my name is Ricochet Brown, and I am an official Looney Tune. And so I've been able to move through life with, you know, just like a comic strip. Well, I remember telling Tammy the first time, she said, what's your full name? What's your middle name? And I said, Ricky Shea Brown. She said, no, sir, nobody would name a kid Ricky Shea Brown. Yeah, it's Looney Tune families do. <laughs> His name 
is now a handle that is couched in the prayer that's going to come. Because he's going to do a word play on this in the very last phrase of this prayer. Now, there's five things that really stand out about this. But before you see this power of prayer from the place of pain, what kind of pain have you come from? You see, all of us in life are going to have some challenges. I uh, came here when I was six years old and turned seven in the Christmas break of 1971 and went to finished first grade at Thousand Oaks Elementary and uh, part of second grade. And my mom had just married a guy a month earlier, not even a month, uh, an ex-con that had just got out of San Quentin prison from armed robbery. And this is the guy that raised me. He, he was a psycho guy. Now, he was raised with a silver spoon in his mouth. You see, his dad had won three Academy Awards as a cinematographer. And his name's uh, Winton C. Hoke. And his name is Tony Hoke. But he decided to have a life of, of crime. And um, so he had gotten out of San Quentin. My mom and him had a whirlwind romance. And he marries my mom. She's 32, 33, four kids. And he's 28 and never raised a kid. And he's a crazy man. And his, uh, his point of reference is prison life. That's where he's been for the last six or seven years. And so he was training horses out on the, what you guys know as the Paramount Ranch. Back then it wasn't the Paramount Ranch. Um, and he was training horses. So after a month, just get this, one month of observation of us four kids, he decided to engage his parenting skills. He knows nothing. He's a really, really harsh guy. And so he gets these four powder blue suitcases and he brings them home and he gets a permanent marker and the full side of the suitcase on one side, he writes what our new nicknames are. Now his form of discipline or the desire to form our character is humiliation. He figures that'll motivate you to change, okay? So my brother, he had a, he's like 12, he's got a little baby fat, so he writes in huge letters, fatso. And he said, this is your suitcase and everywhere we travel. Now when you are a ex-con, you move about every six to 12 months. So he gave my brother this and he had the biggest grin. When he did this, he did it with such delight. Here's your suitcase, fatso. Can you imagine my big brother, what, you know, it was devastating to him. And then my sister, they had, we had been moving to a lot of schools through my parents' divorce and stuff. Now, when you go to a school system for a few months and then another one, you can't ever catch up academically. You're always lost. And so he wrote in huge letters, dummy, for my sister. And he handed this powder blue suitcase to my sister. Then he had rosebud on my brother Scotty's suitcase. And it almost sounds like a compliment, right? You're like a rosebud. But it's not. He wanted to make sure. He waited for the punchline. We got it and we were all like, rosebud? Why is that a thing? And he said, I want you to know that this is a sheep herder's term for a prolapsed sheep's rectum. And that's what I think of you. I'm like six or seven, like, what's that mean? (laughs) It means the sheep's bottom turned inside out. And then he handed me. Now, I was the youngest. And I was always telling on my older siblings, because when you're the baby getting stomped on, you only have the leverage of being a tattletale. So that's what I did. And so he wrote on mine. He always thought I was crying about something. Goo goo gaga. That's what he wrote on mine. Now, this crazy man was, uh, I mean, I've never met anybody like him. 
he takes me, I'm seven years old, we went over to Ronald Reagan's ranch. Ronald Reagan was the governor of California at the time. And one of his horse training buddies at his ranch was having a birthday, so we went over there. He takes me along, I'm seven years old, and all that, uh, I'm the only child there, they're all adult horse trainers, a bunch of guys, and they're drinking ale beer, so they start feeding me ale beer. And I'm drunk, uh, just totally wiped out, crawling around on my hands and knees, barking like a dog, biting anybody that gets close to me unless they have a beer in their hand at seven years of age. And then we head home and I start, you know, throwing up all over the car and, and just another day in paradise with my new stepdad. This is life. And it's only going to be more colorful. I gave you the PG stuff. So people say, but you don't understand, Pastor. I come from a real life of pain. I always smile. They said, I don't come from a normal family like you. I smile. And I tell them, normal is only the setting on a dryer. It doesn't exist. <laughs> right? So you, you go through this stuff and all of this, all this garbage. Well, we would have little respites from our stepdad because he got out of San Quentin for armed robbery. And then he did another stint in prison for uh, getting busted with 10 hits of acid. He was out of work and selling drugs. And then uh, for burglarizing a house. And the last time, we got a three and a half year reprieve because he stabbed a guy three times. So this is who raised me for my formative years, if you wonder what's wrong with me, right? <laughs> but when you come from real life, right? It's real life. It's not some white picket fence. And Jesus is near to the brokenhearted. Did you know the person in this room that has the deepest hurt in their heart, the scriptures declare Jesus is the closest to you right now. He's sitting right next to you because he sees your pain, he sees your tears, he, he hears your cry. And even the cry that you've buried through the hardness of heart like I did, he sees now, this is the prayer that comes out, flows out of a man that has chosen to connect to God by his grace through faith to experience God's power in his life because he's tired of going through a life just connected with pain as a victim. You're going to go through life playing the victim or you're going to go through life by faith in Jesus totally victorious. The exact same life, two different choices. Nobody else has the choice to choose for you which one you're going to take. You alone have the power of response in your own soul. That's the way God's created you, to be able to respond. Check out this prayer. It says that he prayed in verse 10, Jabez called on the God of Israel saying, Oh, that you would bless me indeed. The first stanza, there's five stanzas of this prayer. First, it's the God of Israel, and he understands through the revelation of who God is and God's word that God is a good God. He not only comprehends who God is, but because God is loving and God is kind and God is gracious, he opens this prayer confident in the grace of God. Tell me the last time you actually prayed something like this. Oh God, just bless me indeed today. I mean, have you ever even prayed? You don't even think that way, right? Most people are like, hey God, you know, uh, if you've got any spare time, could you throw me some crumbs? I don't really deserve it. You know, People are not confident about God's grace because you constantly approach God based upon your own behavior, right? Have you been good enough this week? If you've been a good boy or a good girl, you pray a lot. 
Because you think God's listening, because you think it's a brownie point system. But the grace of God is about believing and receiving what God says about himself. It's not about earning and deserving. And as long as you're stuck in the earning and deserving, you're going to be a miserable soul. You have to discover how to just believe. This is what God says about himself. Now, I didn't understand this in the smallest way that I do until I had children. When I had kids of my own, my firstborn son, Caleb, who's now 31 years old, and uh, he flies jets for SkyWest. My son's a pilot. And, you know, but when he was born, the day he was born, I held this child, six pounds, 12 ounces, in my hand. And I showed him to everybody. Have you ever seen a kid? You ever seen a baby in your, in your whole life? This, this, is my, this is my kid. Now, honestly, he could do absolutely nothing for Tammy and I, except poop, pee, scream at us, and keep us up at night. If you look at it on a merit basis, he was not a keeper. <laughs> right? I mean, they keep you awake, they poop and pee all over the thing. And my son, he had this terrible colic, so it was like projectile spit up all the time. We went through rag after rag after rag, and he just like spit up everywhere. And they could wipe, he's still my kid, look at my kid. Look at this kid I got. I was so excited. Then my daughter came along, Jessica. It's the same thing here. Now I have this little girl. And my soul was lit up. The Greeks have a special word for family love. It's called storge. It means this love that emanates from the soul and heart of a mom and a dad that love their kids. You have no reason, right? Except they came, 23 of my chromosomes, 23 of Tammy's chromosomes. They come together and they're our child. And if I could just pour out the love that was inside of me, every fiber of my being, all I wanted to do for my two kids then, through their whole life, and now is to bless them indeed. I wake up. They don't have to do a single thing in their life. They're just, they're asleep, and I'm looking at them like, man, they're such a winner. They're so awesome. Now, that feeling goes on steroids when the grandkids come. You actually border mental instability you get a little bit crazy. When I watched how my parents interacted with my kids, I looked at them and said, who are you people? You're not the people that raised me. Right, you got money flying around, you got gifts, no rules, ice cream for everyone. It's like, who are you? There's a reason that God does not let grandparents raise kids. You'd ruin them, it's terrible, terrible. And then your grandkids, it's just like, now my children, and now they're, their DNA. I have a little 17-year-old granddaughter. Her name's Galilee Grace. I call her G. Tammy calls her Gigi. And she walks over, because where we live in New York, our apartments are not far apart. So she'll walk over her little, you know, 17-month toddler self. She knocks on my door with her little stocking cap on. Papo! I tried to teach her Papa. It turned into Bapo. I'm going with it. It's Bapo. And she knocks on my door, and no matter what, I'm writing in there, I'm studying in there, I'm paying bills, I'm working in there, the universe stops. Because there's this little package out there, she's this big, with big blue eyes. She calls me Bapo. You see, that love I just described, the Bible says, you fathers being evil know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your heavenly father 
bless you. You see, the love that I just described to you, though to you and I it's very human if you have that experience and you understand it, you can tap into it a little bit. God says, Rick, what you have going on is nothing in comparison to my love for you. Parents do a real disservice to their kids, trying to keep them in line as they're growing up. They'll tell them things like this, God's watching you this week. So a kid goes through all of life like, like God's watching me, he's got a big stick up there, he's just ready to, you know. And so it's no wonder kids grow up with a complex, right? God's watching you. Now if you want to be accurate, according to how the scriptures reveal God, you'd say the same thing, but you'd do it this way. Honey, God's watching you because he just can't keep his eyes off you. He loves you. He wants to work in your life. He knows you're flawed. He knows you're fallen and you're sin. And he still loves you. There's nothing you can do to separate yourself from God's love except reject it. You see, this is the God that Jabez knew. I wonder if it's the God that you know. You know, when Adam and Eve were in the garden and they sinned and they blew it, they're hiding, right? They're naked. They're hiding. They're ashamed. And then it says, and God came walking in the cool of the day. How's it sound? You know, God cruising, walking. And the way you think about God, you hear an inflection in his voice when you read that passage in Genesis 3. He says, Adam, where are you? Right? But some of you hear the voice of a cop. Adam, freeze your naked hide. (laughs) Hands behind your head. Right? Once again, it's a father. Adam, where you at? I mean, honestly, can you play hide and seek from the God of the universe? I mean, you ever play hide and seek with your four-year-old? It's hilarious, right? They're hiding right in the open. They close their eyes, so they think they're hiding. So this prayer and this message will mean absolutely nothing to your heart if you don't know who you're talking to. So he says, bless me indeed. God wants to do great, extraordinary things in your life despite who you are, despite what you've done, despite your pain, despite your past. God says, I love you and I see the incredible potential in you to see God's grace make you victorious not a victim. Secondly, he says, enlarge my territory. You see, for a Jewish person, they get a lot in life. They could lose territory or gain territory depending on circumstances of life. And and this really shows us that he's committed to growth. He, he He wants to grow the family business, if you will. He wants to grow the territory that he has, to plant crops, to be a blessing in the community, to provide for his family. And this could go to each one of us. First of all, not only competent in God's grace that he wants to bless you indeed, but understanding that there's a commitment to growth. You know God's into growth. When he creates Adam, he says, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. That's a growth plan, right? Fill up the earth. In the scriptures, we see that first the Lord is adding to the church daily those who are being saved. And by the time you get to chapter six, it says, in those days, the Lord was multiplying the disciples. Growth, God's into growth. Not only is he into numerical growth, or the growth of creation, but he's also into personal growth. 
As Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 2, he said, Giving all diligence, add to your faith knowledge, and to knowledge virtue, and to virtue love, and to love brotherly kindness. There's, there's growth. Do you know that you are going to be the exact same person five years from now with the exception of two things? The people that you meet that changed your life and the things you read that changed your life. Otherwise, you're going to be the same person five years from now. Because there will be no growth. That's why when you read God's word daily, the growth happens. You read wonderful books. Growth happens in your life. You meet wonderful people. Iron sharpens iron. Right? You're transformed. One relationship, one book, one passage of scripture changes your life. So being committed towards growth. But if you're going to grow, you need power. For it says that your hand would be with me. He's connected to power. If I'm going to grow, I need God's power. Jesus said you're going to receive the Holy Spirit. You're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you to be witnesses of me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Every night, to use the full capacity of this iPhone 10X, which, I mean, you can go to the moon and back, right, with this thing. It's got so much technology in it. It's got things that I haven't even tapped into yet. But every single night, what do I have to do with this stinking thing? Plug it into power, or it's useless. You ever get that important phone call? You're on it, and you, haven't, you forgot to plug it in, and now you're desperate running around some public place trying to find that. Where's my, where's my plug-in? Oh, no, I don't have it in the car. What am I going to do with this? To enjoy the benefits of this piece of equipment, I must have power. To enjoy the Christian life and all that God has for you, you must rely by faith in the power of the Holy Spirit, just as you do in Jesus for salvation. This is the resource of power. My oatmeal that I eat in the morning and my protein shake, they're not going to pull it off. Right? It's not going to get the job done. I need supernatural power by God because I realize in my humanness, my own weakness. Fourthly, he says that you would keep me from evil. That you would keep me from evil. So he's conscious of his own sinful nature. God changes us, and the moment he changes us, he makes us a new creation. We're a new creature in Christ, and now a new uh, birth has happened inside of me. But what happens is now the spirit in my old fallen nature, my flesh, my sinful habits, my sinful nature, it's still intact. Isn't this the biggest drag of the Christian life? It is such a drag. I actually thought I was losing my mind when I first became a Christian. Because now, all of a sudden... I wanted to do neither. I wanted to read the Bible. I wanted to pray. I wanted to go to church. I wanted to learn about Jesus. But I still wanted to do all the old things because, you know, you're just saved and you're going through the sanctification. I still wanted to go to the bar with my friends. I still wanted to snort coke. I still wanted to do all the stuff I was doing. And then all of a sudden now I'm tormented. I'm like, what's going on? Like there's a war inside of me because I wasn't around any Christians. I wasn't going to church. I got saved all by myself, half drunk after a couple of drug deals, right? So I'm trying to figure, I went down to the Christian bookstore, bought this cheap Bible, it's a little award Bible. I discovered after a month of actually reading it, award Bibles are not meant to be read because the binder just falls off them. They're like a picture. You know, you put it on the shelf. And I'm trying to figure this out. The Bible says that the spirit and the flesh begin to fight. You've been fighting this week, right? The spirit and the flesh lust against each other. It means there's this fighting match every day inside of me. What a total drag, right? I thought I was losing my mind because, like, you know, I want to love Jesus. I want to smoke that joint. I want to love Jesus. I want to smoke that joint. See, I say these things because, you see, I'm busy. You guys can't fire me. Isn't that cool? It's awesome. So, 
And I'm like tormented back and forth. And then I would smoke the joint. And I'm maybe Christian nine months or something. And I'm like, oh no, I love Jesus. And I'm high. What a drag. What a bummer this is. I didn't mean to start out this day that way, you know. This is the sanctification process. It takes you a while to clean up, right? So I'm conscious of the evil nature inside of me. I am, comp- I am capable. You see, before knowing Jesus, I did terrible Terrible things. And I was on probation the first time in the third grade. How do you even get on probation in the third grade? Busted by for grand larceny when I was 15. And then, you know, on and on. So, uh, the thing is, I know, why would Jesus teach us in the Lord's Prayer? When the disciples said, Lord, teach us how to pray. He said, okay. You want a great prayer to wrap up your day each day? Or to start your day? One of the lines in the Lord's Prayer is, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Every day, I have the potential of the downward gravitational pull of the old Rick Brown. And my wife says it so well. See, Tammy and I, we dated when our first date, she was 15 and I was 17. This is 37 years ago. And so she knows Rick Brown that corrupted the good girl, and then the one that came to Christ. So every now and then, somebody will start singing my praises a little too loudly for my wife's comfort. <laughs> oh, Rick, you're wonderful, and you read the Bible, and then they go through all, and I think, you know, I'm just, go ahead, it's all right, just keep talking. After a while, when it just pushes Tammy over the limit, she says, wait, just stop. Without Jesus, Rick is a total jerk. It's always, it really stings, you know? <laughs> and I tell her, I say, honey, that sounds so much better when I say it. But she says, well, I don't mind saying it. <laughs> <laughs> Why? Because she knows me without Jesus. I'm a total jerk. And even with Jesus, I still have the downward pull of my old sin nature that I can be as big a jerk as I used to be. It's just a step away. So, Jabez is connected to reality, right? Now, I know you guys never struggle with sin or temptation. You know, people in Wisconsin struggle with those things, but you don't because you're good and wonderful, saintly people, and visitors like me struggle, so enough said on that subject. Anyway, the fifth phrase that he uses here is that I may not cause pain. This is a play on the Hebrew word of his very own name. He said, I'm named pain, Jabez but I don't want to go through life causing pain to other people, right? You want to go through life hurting people? The reality is about every human's experience is people have hurt you in life. That's real life, right? That's the human existence. And you like to tell the story about how so-and-so did this and how so-and-so hurt you here and how so-and-so betrayed you. But do you know, you and your own human experience, what have you done? You have also hurt people with your selfishness, with your remarks, with your decisions, what you've done. We don't like to talk about that. We just like to talk about what everybody else has done to moi. Just little old me. But the reality is we've went through life hurting people and being hurt because that's the human experience. So what are you going to do with that? If I'm praying that I wouldn't go through life causing pain to others, that means that I'm conscious that each day of my life I have the potential to be a blessing or to hurt people. 
Now, prior to knowing Jesus, because I grew up in a very rough and tumble on the streets, tough life, I was a survivor and I don't care about you and whatever it takes, I'm going to live. And if I have to throw you under the bus or to the curb or whatever, I'm going to do it. That's the way I lived. And uh, that's the way I was raised. When I was uh, 15, I wrecked a classmate's truck. She just got a brand new D50 Dodge pickup, the little mini trucks when they came back or came out. And my friend and I, her, her and her boyfriend were fighting. And so I asked if I could take her truck. But I was 15. I was drunk. And my friend Rusty was drunk. He was with me. And we were on the cruise. Now, we come from Idaho, old school town where you actually, there was a cruise. Like you drive and you see, talk to the girls. And it's like an old, you know, movie. And so we're, we're talking to these girls. And the traffic stops in front of me. But I don't see because I'm talking to the cute girls. And so I ram into the back of this Chevy in front of me. And this, this guy that had this Chevy, he built his own homemade uh, bumper. It's like an I-beam on the back of his truck. So it's totally smashed and crushed the front end of this little uh, D50 Dodge pickup. It didn't even, I mean, knock an ounce of rust off his bumper. But I mean, when I hit, the steering wheel hit me in the chin and I got this huge goose egg. It about knocked me out on my chin. And uh, he's waving me to pull over. And I realized in that moment, I'm drunk, I'm 15. It's night. So I, you start driving at 14 in Idaho but you get your night driver's license at 16. So I realize I'm drunk, I'm driving, I'm drinking underage, driving underage, I'm going to jail tonight. Now I had recently been busted for grand larceny, so this is not a good combination of events. So I fled the scene like any good drunk adolescent would do. I fled the scene of the crime, went and parked the truck back at the alley bar where I'd picked it up from my, my friend, left the keys in it and went home like nothing happened. I didn't tell her, didn't talk to her, just left the truck. Smashed, totally demolished front end. And so her and her boyfriend hunt me down about two in the morning because I had moved, you know, my family moves all the time, so they had to find me. And they're paying, you know, what'd you do to the truck? And this whole big drama. Well, her father was so mad at her because he told her not to let anybody drive her new truck. And if it was damaged, he was going to take the money out of her college fund and not pay it with insurance. So he made her pay out of her college fund. So she, all the way through high school, that's still 15, I'm, I'm a freshman. So all the way through high school, every year, a couple of times a year, she would ask me for that money. I'd just blow her off. Her name's Nikki. Forget you, Nikki. I'm sure insurance took care of No, and she'd tell me the story. I said, I don't care. That's between you and your dad. And I'm just a jerk. I don't care about her. I don't care about, I'm going on. She went on to, on to college. She calls me. Freshman year of college. This is like four years, five years later. Rick, you know that money? I'm hurting in college for money. I don't care. I told her in very colorful language how I didn't care. And I hung up the phone. But then I got saved. What a drag. <laughs> I get saved. I start growing. And Tammy and I get married. And we flip our first home. The Lord's blessed us over the years. We're flipping homes. And I sell this first home. And we make a chunk of money for a young couple. And and I'm just thanking the Lord. I'm praying. I'm like, Jesus, you're so awesome. And I can't believe you blessed us in this way. And we don't deserve it. And Lord, anything you want, you know, I'm your, I'll do whatever you want. And the Lord just says, I want you to pay Nikki back. I'm like, hey, you forgave me of that. He said, I know, but she did it. Really? Like for reals? Yeah. Why don't you pay her back? So I call her out of the blue. It's been, what, seven, eight years. Hey, Nikki, this is Rick Brown. What do you want? I said, well, you know, I remember the truck. Thing. You do, I remember the truck thing. How many conversations have we had about this? I said, how much was it? She told me. I said, okay, Tammy's going to bring a check down. So Tammy brings a check to Nikki. 
And Nikki said, I can't believe it. She said, I heard Rick got religion. I didn't believe it. She said, what church do you go to? It's kind of like, whatever church, it wasn't the church, it was Jesus, but whatever, whatever place, I want to know about that place that can change a jerk like Rick Brown into a person that brings a check eight years later, you know, to pay for a debt. You see, but I realized in that process, I had been hurt growing up in all kinds of ways. And I just turned that around and just started hurting everybody else before they could hurt me because that's the way I became preemptive. It's like a survival mechanism. And some of you know exactly what I mean. Before you get too close to me, I am gonna cut you off at the knees because if you get too close, it hurts too much. It hurts too much. I was going through life as a victim and victimizing other people. Jabez said, I don't want to go through life. From, I, I, just like my brothers, I came through a lot of pain, but I don't want to go through life Jabezing, because his name means pain, Jabezing anybody else. And it says, how do you discover God's huge amen from heaven? It says at the end of verse 10, so God granted him what he requested. God answers what aligns with his will. This Powerful prayer from the place of pain aligned with the heart of God. And God said, amen, Jabez. That's exactly what I want to do. And that's exactly what he wants to do in your heart, in your life, for the rest of your life. Not because you deserve it. Not because we're special, but because he's special and he's good and he's loving. You know, every single one of us have a story that lines up in a similar way. You know, even... My wife's story from a place of tremendous hardship and pain, and we both came through just like a truckload of garbage. And through her process, she, the Lord just healed her and, he, and set her free, and, and she didn't want to go forward hurting people any longer. And God changed her and transformed her, and then one day two ladies at our church had the same kind of pain in their life, and they talked to Tammy. So Tammy wrote a Bible study for two ladies in our church who turned into this now it's translated into different languages. You know, thousands of people, women have went through it. And the funniest, craziest stories, and people being healed and set free. Somebody went through a study, or a study got thrown in a dumpster in Texas. We got a phone call in Idaho. This lady, she said, I was homeless a year ago. I was dumpster diving to survive. I came across healed and set free in the dumpster, and Jesus changed my life. And she said, I'm no longer homeless. Now I can call the church. And she said, there were two chapters that were ripped out of the book. And I was wondering if you would send me those two chapters. <laughs> Obviously, we sent her the whole book, right? <laughs> From a dumpster. We had another friend of ours started to heal and set free in Minnesota. And they advertised in the newspaper for anybody in the community that wants to come to a healed and set free Bible study. These two ladies showed up. They misread the advertisement. They thought it said healed and fat free. <laughs> they thought it was a dietary Bible study. They showed up and, and, you know, you'd think you'd just walk out. We made a mistake. Healed and fat free. No, it's not healed and fat free. It's healed and set free. And they went through the nine week study and they both gave their lives to Jesus, even though misreading the thing. So the cool thing about it is that it's this incredible story with not only Tammy and my story in it, but 36 
other ladies that have went through the most horrendous pain in their life and how Jesus set them free. And I wanted to put the slide up there so any of you ladies or men, whoever, may want it. But let's just close in prayer. And before you ever order that, maybe here today, God is doing something in your heart. You realize, I mean, you've, you've got those shields up. You've got a lot of pain going on. You've got the armor. And through all of that armor, God sees the tears and the sorrow of your heart. And today, you can offer to God and discover the power of prayer from a place of your own pain.